grandchildren. Okay, who wants a spanking? You know, I've never had one of them volunteer. Although they have volunteered their siblings. The truth is, we did not enjoy being disciplined as children. And yet as adults, we now understand that it was both necessary and for our good. By the same token, as adults, we still don't enjoy being disciplined by God, but it is necessary and for our good. This morning, there are some things that we must learn if we are to profit from God's discipline. First, we must learn the perspective for difficulties. Verse number four. You have not resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. We can take comfort and strength from the promises of God's word, but we have to know what they are. John MacArthur observes, none of the suffering Hebrews to whom this letter was written had endured what Jesus had endured. None had given their life for the gospel, nor had any of them lived an absolutely sinless life as Jesus had done. Living in perfect obedience to the Father and thus deserving no punishment at all. On the contrary, some of their suffering was deserved and was intended for their spiritual development and growth. Secondly, we must learn the purpose of discipline. The term discipline used nine times in eight verses is a broad term signifying whatever parents or teachers do to train, correct, cultivate, and educate children to help them develop and mature as they should. The value of discipline and correction depends entirely on our reaction to it. There are three types or purposes of divine discipline, corrective, preventive, and educational. Let's look at each of them briefly. First of all, correction. The church at Corinth is a prime example of the corrective discipline of God. In chapter number 11 of 1 Corinthians and in verse 30, Paul plainly told these believers, for this reason, that is because of their sinful conduct, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. That is many died. Paul goes on to say that they are being chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. There is corrective. There is also preventive. Sometimes God disciplines believers in order to prevent sin. The apostle Paul was given a thorn in the flesh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7, to keep him from becoming proud. Just as we put limitations and limits, sometimes even literal fences 
to keep our children safe. So our Heavenly Father sometimes puts restrictions and restrictive circumstances in the lives for our good. Corrective, preventive, educational. God's purpose and discipline is also to teach us, if we will listen, just as it's possible to attend school and learn nothing, it is possible to be disciplined by the Lord and learn nothing. C.S. Lewis hits the nail on the head when he says, many would rather have a benevolent grandfather in heaven whose prime interest is our contentment rather than a father whose prime interest is our character. The late Malcolm Mulridge, an agnostic for most of his life, is said to have been converted to Christianity in the 1960s. An old man, looking back on his life, he made some very sharp indications of what was it like. As an old man, Mulgridge observed, contrary to what might be expected, I look back on the experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, everything I have learned, everything that is truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness. If it were possible to eliminate affliction from our earthly existence, the result would not be to make life enjoyable, but to make it too dull and trivial to be endurable. By way of contrast, many have allowed difficult trials to turn them away from God. Trials are a fact of life. But now how we respond to them is our choice. I don't know if Mugridge really was converted, but he seems to have grown better through his trials. But to cease to believe God, to believe in God on account of suffering does not make God cease to exist. It does not resolve the problem. To run with endurance the race that's set before us, we need to know how God wants to res- us to respond to his loving discipline. The third thing we do is we learn the proper response to discipline. In verse number five, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. The writer of Hebrews gives two extremes when it comes to reacting to the disciplines of God. The first is to despise his discipline, which is to be indifferent to its significance. It is refused to even consider that something that is happening in our lives may be God trying to get our attention. We may be vaguely aware on some level that this may be God's hand, but we dismiss the thought and blow it off. 
by refusing to consider why we are going through difficulties, then we fail the benefit from its experience. The other extreme is to allow ourselves to become discouraged by difficulties. Instead of being indifferent to the discipline of God, they are overwhelmed by it. So how you respond to difficulties that roll into your life? Do you cover your ears and try to keep from hearing what the voice of God may be trying to say to you through that experience? Do you stop to consider what God may be trying to work out in your life through those difficulties? We have to learn to properly respond to discipline. And fourth, we must learn there is a progression in discipline. He says in verse 5, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. As we look again at verse 5 and verse 6, we see there are three different words used to describe God's discipline to his children. I want you to mark them in your Bible. In verse 5, mark the word chastening and rebuked. And verse 6, mark the word scourges. Now, let's look at each of those words. First, in verse 5, is the word chastening, often, often translated chastisement or discipline. Generally, when we see the word chastening, we think of what we in the South call getting a whooping. But actually, the Greek word denotes the overall training of a child. It signifies whatever is done to train, correct, discipline, and mature children in order to keep them develop as they should. By the same token, the purpose of Christian discipline is to develop our character. Then in verse 5, there is also the word rebuke. This particular Greek word means to convict or to reprove. It implies a rebuke that is deserved that can carry conviction. A rebuke is a verbal correction. A rebuke is a gentle reminder from the Lord that we need to correct some action. That we have veered from the course and we need to be put back on course. And the third word is found in verse 6, and it is the word scourges. And it's a much stronger word than chasten or rebuke. The word translated scourges literally means whipped. Well, I want to direct your attention to a verse that is deeply troubling to some people, but I believe has a fairly simple explanation. It it covers the idea of sin unto death. It is 1 John chapter 5, verse number 16. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. But the last sentence is the problem. There is a sin leading to death. Now, if you read an article in the newspaper with the title, Five Things That Bring Death, you would know that the article is probably going to talk about five things that ruin your health and bring about an early death. It might include like smoking and stress and jumping out of a fairly good airplane. When we apply the same reasoning to this verse about the sin and the death, it not only makes it 
make more sense in context, but also makes it more, have more sense in the light of Scripture and in our own experience as well. For example, we know that there are certain behaviors and actions which can lead a person to an early grave. But aside from that, there are some sins that cause God to discipline a person with an early death. So let me apply this to our discussion of discipline. In other words, first God spanks his rebellious child, and then if they do not yield, he may remove them from this world before their disobedience leads others astray and brings further disgrace to themselves. I often illustrate this truth by relating what we as parents do when we take our child somewhere and they continually misbehave. First, you may take them aside and admonish them verbally. If you don't straighten up, you're headed for trouble. And if they continue to be disobedient and misbehave, we may admonish them even more sternly. I have already warned you, and now you better straighten up or I'm going to have to punish you. And if they still do not behave, we may take them aside privately and spank them. Again telling them, now your behavior has brought this on yourself. You have got to behave yourself. And if, however, they still do not behave, even after they've been spanked, what do you do? Think about it. You take them home. Before they can embarrass themselves, are you any further? The sin unto death is not a single isolated act but one that has been repeated over and over and over again by a disobedient child of God the Christian can persist in some known sin and if they continually deliberately practice sin and refuse to repent and even not, not responding to God's discipline then the only recourse the Lord may have, may be physical death. Not eternal spiritual death, but physical death. That is to take them home before they can further harm themselves or the cause of Christ. All of these people committed a sin unto death. We can see it over and over again, 1 Corinthians 11, 30, 1 Corinthians 5, 5. We, we hear it about the man who openly boasted about uh, having sex with his stepmother and on and go on, people who continued to do that. That's the kind of people who committed a sin unto death. Not that one particular act, but a continual repeated sin that they know is wrong. And fifth, <clears throat> we need to learn the products of discipline. And the first is, believe it or not, it proves our relationship. He says in verse 7, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But you are without chastening of all that have become partakers. Then you are illegitimate and not sons. 
Now, the common reaction when we're going through severe trials in our life is to believe God does not love me. God doesn't care what's happening to me. Or God, if he loved me, would not allow this to happen to me. But that's entirely contrary to what God's word says. In fact, if you can sin and get away with it, you better do some serious self-examination. The language of verse 8 clearly indicates a person is not truly saved if they are not chastened for, for continuing in sin. As a pastor, I have had the occasion to be around a lot of children over the course of nearly 40 years in the ministry. I have over the years spoken a word or two of correction here and there to a child I thought may be about to hurt themselves or others. But for the most part, I've refrained from disciplining the children of others, although there were occasions of which I wished to. At times, we've all wanted to discipline someone else's children when they disturb us or irritate us. We've all been in a public place where some child was running wild and we've thought, I wish you were my child for just a week. But there has only been one child who has regularly received my correction and that's my own child. My discipline in her life was painful and unwanted. But it was evidence that she belonged to me and that I loved her. The discipline proved the love and the relationship. I want to establish one thing, even if you got nothing else from this message. When we discipline our children, even for something serious, we do not put them out of the family. We discipline them to correct their behavior not to disown them. Neither does God put us out of the family when he disciplines us. I'm sure that my parents down through life sometimes were embarrassed to admit that they were my parents. My actions may have even broken our fellowship at times, but it never changed the relationship. Whether they wanted it or not, I was always their son. I want you to notice that it not only proves our relationship, it proves our father's love. Furthermore, verse 9, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he, for our prophet, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Verse 9 contrasts our human fathers with our heavenly father, the father of spirits. Every earthly father realizes that we make mistakes in disciplining our children. 
even though we try to do so in a correct and wise manner, in truth, we often fail. Sometimes we punish more out of anger than we do out of love. Sometimes we punish more severely than the offense called for. Sometimes we may even punish a child for something they did not do. The point here is if the discipline of our earthly fathers was beneficial, even though it was flawed by our human shortcomings, good earthly fathers seek to prepare us for life on earth. But God is preparing for us for a life in eternity. The message you give your children when you discipline them with love is, I care enough about you that I will not allow you to misbehave. I care enough about you that I'm willing to spend the time and the effort to keep you from misbehaving, to, to help you learn what is appropriate. Disciplining is challenging. Disciplining is costly. Consistent discipline will wring you out to the point that you do not believe you have the energy to carry it through. But not to pay the cost is to tell that child, you are not important to me. You are not worth the effort. What great truth is displayed in the words of verse 11, nevertheless, afterwards. Discipline itself does not produce the fruit it is confined to those we see that those who have been trained by it. The grand design of all divine di discipline is to make us more like him. Holy. And I close with this truth. Real faith is holding blessings in one hand and suffering in the other and trusting God to use them both to accomplish his will. Let's pray. Father, we admit that none of us likes discipline. None of us wants to be disciplined. We do recognize, though, that your discipline in our lives shows us that we belong to you and that you love us. By the same token, when we apply discipline in our lives, to our children. We are telling them, you belong to me. You are my family. Nothing you can do will ever change that you're my son or daughter. And we tell them, I care about you. I love you. I love you too much to allow you to continue to do what you're doing. Father, help us. First of all, as earthly parents, to be consistent in our discipline. It is a energy draining day after day process. Give us strength. Help us, Lord, to recognize your discipline in our lives. Help us to look at our lives and say, if there is sin in my life that I'm continuing to do that I know God condemns, and I'm not under conviction about that, then help me to look at my life and really determine, 
whether I belong to you. If you can sin continually, then it's a sign that you're not God's child. Father, help us to apply these truths in our life. We ask it in Jesus' name.